Hey everybody, welcome to episode 2 of Late Last Night, a podcast where we read collected, original, and adapted horror stories. This week, we got uh, two short stories, both original, and a very classic, very awesome poem. I'm your host, Caitlin Noti, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Stay tuned. All eyes in the shop were glued to the TV. The news was shocking, but expected. Another celebrity murder. Third one this week. Dan felt a nudge from his coworker. Dude, stop looking at your depressing Twitter stats. Cassidy Sharp is dead. Seriously, Jared? Dan thought. He was irritated. His latest blog post was certainly his best, balanced and insightful. Walking the narrow. Wait, what? Ms. Sharp, beloved host of Talk Tonight, was discovered dead outside her Beverly Hills home this afternoon. Tragically, it was her daughter who found the body. The LAPD has yet to release details, but anonymous cult leader Jonesy is already taking credit on various social media accounts. Jared thrust his phone at Dan's face. Dude, the cult just posted a pic of the body? Look at this shit. Dan swatted him away and looked at the ceiling. You're only supporting this madness, Jared. It's not a joke. 40 celebrity murders this year, showing no signs of stopping. All at the hands of supposed fans. All encouraged by this mysterious Jonesy. Some of us have places to be, gentlemen. Spat a man in line. Jared rolled his eyes and began punching coffee orders on the computer. Hey, Dee, be grateful you're a barista. Dan heard while hanging up his apron. The customers grill you, but at least they don't kill you. Whatever. Dan muttered, putting on his Red Sox cap and maneuvering the familiar steps past the kitchen and out the door. The day job was finally over, and he was already planning his next blog post. What's your endgame, Jonesy? Fuck, fuck, fuck. Hannah's phone wouldn't stop buzzing. Love the vid, girl. You're a star. Lots of heart emojis. So many old friends reinserting themselves. Way too much attention. Fuck. Fuck. The TV was muted, but she was reading the subtitles. Cassidy Sharp was beaming from the screen. A familiar ringtone filled the air. Hannah answered it before the tune could even be recognized. Greta, fucking finally. She plopped onto her favorite love seat. Have you seen the news? Yes, Hannah. You went viral. Amazing. No, I mean Cassidy Sharp. A few seconds of silence. Hannah put her sister on speakerphone and dropped the phone to the floor. Greta, I'm scared. An impatient sigh came through the speaker. Hannah bristled, closed her eyes, massaged her temples. I'm taking the video down. Don't be impulsive. I'm taking the whole video down and I'm flying home as soon as I can. Just tell Dad. Another silence. Hannah opened her eyes and leaned over, peering at the busy street below her. The Friday nightlife was stirring now that the 9-to-5s were winding down. 
Melrose is bustling with wannabes. Another sigh through the phone. Just sit on it, baby sister. Go to sleep, clear your head, be happy. Congratulations, by the way. Hannah swallowed a retort. I love you, Greta. I'll call you later. She shut down her phone, walked across the room to the kitchen, and popped a bottle of Cabernet. She wasn't certain what time she fell asleep, but when she woke, her roommate's door was closed. She felt relieved. At least I'm not alone. Hannah opened her laptop, navigated to her YouTube channel, and hovered her hand over the delete button. After muttering, Two million views? Christ! She committed. After checking to make sure the front door was locked, she passed out again on the love seat. Cassidy Sharp was still smiling from the television. Everyone loves a good story, but let's define good as right, as just. Let's stop romanticizing death, and let's start celebrating life. Dan slumped back into his swivel chair. He felt warm, nauseous. He felt shame at having ever bought into the mystique of tragedy. He leaned forward and resumed typing. Jonesy is only right as long as we prove him right. Preachy, he thought, but I'll roll with it. He glanced at the TV. Several major networks had been running Talk Tonight nonstop since Sharp's death. The networks wouldn't be complaining about ratings this quarter, that's for sure. He typed his conclusion. Let's prove him wrong. Dan hit the post button and shut off the TV. He stood and stretched, then just stood for a moment, studying his breath. In, out. In, out. The studio apartment was not silent, but it was dark. What time was it? Three in the morning? His phone lit up. One new follower. He felt proud of his work, and with a renewed energy, he put on his Red Sox cap, tossed his phone in the desk chair, and walked out onto Pico. Some stars were peeking out. He enjoyed being off the grid from time to time. He headed east, away from the noise. Hannah woke to the smell of pancakes. She loves pancakes. Rubbing her eyes, she transitioned from fetal position to phone reading position. It took a few seconds, but once her phone was up and running, the incoming text sounded like a vibrator set to painful pleasure. She groaned. Morning, superstar! Called a voice from the kitchen. Sam. Hannah rolled onto her feet and shuffled to the table. I... Wait, did you see the video? Of course. A couple friends shared it on Facebook. The song won't quit. Sam sat across from Hannah, perching a smiling head on two manicured hands. Hannah's heart skipped a beat. She opened her mouth, but wasn't sure what to say. Sam reached across and put a finger to Hannah's lips. I know you're scared, but eat up. Worrying won't help you now. But I took it down. Hannah protested between mouthfuls of blueberry pancakes and syrup. I, I took down my whole channel. Looks like someone put it back up. Sam said with a smile. Like I said, that song won't quit. Hannah pushed back from the table, holding a glass of milk in her hand. She coughed. Some industry people came knocking this morning, by the way. 
Sam drew circles on the table with her middle finger. Said they tried calling. I told them you were asleep. She winked. Make them think you're playing hard to get. Maybe I can be your manager. She threw her head back and let out a single blast. <laughs> Hannah felt the tears coming. The song wouldn't quit. She was exposed. Sam pouted and grabbed Hannah's free hand, massaging it. Oh, poor thing. Are you thinking about Ms. Sharp? You should be happy for her. Now she can live forever. Hannah yanked her hand away and stood up, letting her glass slip, smashing on the floor. Sam, you... You're welcome for re-uploading the video. Such a silly move. I mean, think about your career. Hannah stumbled backwards, tripping on a happy Buddha. The back of her head broke the fall with a loud crack. She felt dizzy. Her throat was itching. Oxygen was becoming more elusive. Sam stood over her roommate and looked down with pity. Welcome to eternity. You're welcome. The darkness was closing in on Hannah. She would have been weeping if she could breathe. Sam. <laughs> Sam. She gargled. Hannah. Sam was shaking her, looking distraught. Hannah, wake up. It was nighttime. Was I dreaming? Dan pulled out his third Marlboro, stepping gingerly past a sleeping man. The city streets were peaceful at night, at least in this part of town. Dangerous, perhaps, but peaceful. A young couple walked out of a convenience store up ahead. They were arguing. It felt good to be alone. Hey, man. Dan flinched. A handsome stranger had appeared from behind. He was wearing a red bathrobe and black gym shorts. His face had a Jesus thing going on. Can I bum a light? Dan blinked, mouth gaping. Uh, sure, dude. He scrambled for a cigarette and shoved it clumsily into the stranger's outstretched palm. You're welcome. He blurted and took a brisk step westward before the man cleared his throat. I have a cigarette. I just need a light. Dan was flustered. Peaceful walk, huh? Sorry, man. It just, just surprised me is all. He said, flicking up a flame and holding it to the stranger's unlit cigarette. It's no worries. I have that effect on people. The robe man flashed a charming set of teeth. I'm light on my feet. He took a long drag, drumming a thumb on his thigh. You coming back from a party or something? Dan was taken aback by this intrusion. Uh, yeah. I like the walk, though. The stranger nodded, looking around at everything but Dan. He took another drag before dropping the half-used cigarette on the ground. They both watched it fizzle out. This Cassidy Sharp shit is insane, right? Dan scratched at his chin. Yeah, crazy times. Well, I'm gonna get a- You know, I was reading this blog. Not a big blog. Just a random guy. You know, he talks a lot of sense, though. He can make nonsense sound like... Real sense, if you know what I'm saying. He really, uh, he really gets it, you know? He really gets it. Dan stared expressionless. The stranger smiled, this time without teeth. Dan nodded once, then took a sharp turn to the west, moving with long, rapid strides. He felt the sudden urge to get home. Where you going, Dan? The stranger called from behind, a gentle chuckle. <laughs> Dan picked up his pace. I'm a fan, Dan. A sharp pain pierced the center of Dan's back. He crumpled to his knees. Help! He called. Help me! 
His voice echoed toward the ocean. He felt weak. Big. Someone! Big someone help me, please! Fan, big, big fan. Help! The pain of the knife being removed was even more excruciating than its entrance. You know, your words, they're so reasonable. <laughs> you almost made me second guess myself. The knife entered again, this time lower and to the left. Uh, your death won't be broadcast. As much as you deserve it. Dan regained consciousness just as the trunk door slammed over him. He felt the car engine start. His back was soaked with blood and his heart was throbbing. Hope was vanishing. He thought of his mother. He cursed his co-worker, Jared. He prayed for Cassidy Sharp. The Offering, written and narrated by Eric Radloff. Voiced by Carrie Singer, Mac and Carol, John Rockwell, Caitlin Nodi, Ren Martinez, Meg Mahold, Maddie Ross, and Aaron Childs. shambling mound. Every day I shamble like a slug to the shithole on the corner to sell the refuse their cigarettes and lottery tickets and beer and candy. I drape my ponderous ass over a stool and stare all day at pockmarked meth addicts and gaudily pierced teenagers and chew sunflower seeds till the shells disintegrate in my mouth and I swallow it all. I watch them come and go and I see who they're with and I remember. I watch the neighborhood. I wait for Curtis to come and take over. He's usually there by five after six and usually takes off his headphones, ostentatiously large, of course, and says, Hey, sorry I'm late. I'll cover you next week if you want. I tell him it's okay and that he doesn't owe me anything other than not telling Mr. Park that I'm taking another frozen pizza. Then I heave myself out from behind the counter and warble my way around the base of the hill to Mrs. Trellis's basement. That's an average day, and it's gone on like that. I find I'm still going about the day as usual. Evenings have always been a little more irregular. <clears throat> Some nights I gorge myself. I inhale indiscriminately. I hoard the frozen pizzas, and on these nights I eat two or three with a dozen or so beers and a touch of gin probably a two liter of Shasta or whatever is cheapest that week. A few bags of chips, whatever else is around. Sometimes it's popcorn or candy. Sometimes 
I buy a bag of carrots so that Cheryl might not think it's my fault I'm so fat. If there's a bag of carrots, I eat that too. That's only some nights, though. Some nights I need to touch myself. I'm not proud of it, but everyone has urges, and it's only natural to touch yourself. I do feel bad, though. Maybe I wouldn't if it were different, but it's so desperate. It's like... It's feverish. I become... Frantic. It's sickening to see. It's disgusting. Sometimes on my bed. Sometimes in my chair. Sometimes hunched by the window. Always to the sounds of those videos from YouTube of women whispering that make your skin tingle. Always with beads of sweat dribbling across my expanse of quivering flesh, clad only in a crude diaper of gauze. I watch the neighborhood from my window. I know who comes and goes around my home from between 6.27 p.m and 9.41 a.m. And I know who comes and goes around the shithole from between 9.57 a.m. and 6.09 p.m. Sometimes I watch the security tape from overnight so I can know who comes and goes in both places at once. I think about putting cameras around my home so I can know who comes and goes during the day there, but I don't have enough money. I think about it a lot. Maybe I won't anymore, who knows. Some nights I work. My parents taught me the importance of work. Understanding what it means to work and understanding the value of work are virtues lost on these scum. The detritus that wanders past know nothing of the value of work. I don't mean the menial tasks that most people get paid for. No one cares about that. A toaster could do my job. I mean real work. I mean really building yourself. Most people don't understand that you can play with the universe. You can control it. You can control people. It's simple, really. It's a very basic, practical matter to manifest your own will just through behavior. If you understood that, it's possible you wouldn't have ended up here. I doubt it, though. Controlling people is a simple matter of dialect. Language is thought, and if you create the words that people use in order to think, those people become yours. They become beholden to you so completely that they will defer to you in every way. They trust you to explain and define their own experiences. L. Ron Hubbard did it. The Waco guy did it. The Jonestown guy did it. 
That fuckwit from the Netflix documentary did it. It's fucking easy. But I don't like talking to people. People also don't like talking to me. I imagine that talking to me is not a pleasant experience. I mumble and avert my eyes. I say rambling, offensive things about people's appearances. I sweat and drip the greasy secretion resultant of my gluttony. That's why I have to write my dialect. That's my work. I use stories to build my language and teach it to people. I suppose it's disingenuous to say people. It's not just anyone I want. But of course you know that by now. My stories are fantasy. An ethereal walk through realms as beautiful as the limits of the imagination. Stories about unlikely heroes realizing the potential of their own minds to carry them away from their fetid hives. They travel to distant lands and learn that worth comes from within. That the keys to their happiness is in their hearts. It's fucking garbage, of course. I was watching the previous night's security tape from the tenuous comfort of Mr. Park's stool when Allison came into the store for the first time. That was a long time ago. She was very young then. She was then and she remains now radiant. She shone like a diamond, a ray of sunlight, a dazzling explosion of energy that illuminates any room she enters. I saw it then, and I see it now. I don't know why no one else seems to see it, but I literally see it. She is brighter in my vision. I think that deserves something some consideration or respect. My stories are about Allison. She's the hero. In my stories, she lies to herself that she's happy with her life. She goes about her day, day by day, having to convince herself that it's okay, that she spends her days scrambling about in shit. It's a cycle that she just barely survives, having to live through the abusive neglect of her father and the incessant hypervigilance of her mother, and in the next step having to justify it to herself. She works to justify not just the abuse and neglect, but also to justify her own justification of it. She works to rationalize the wild opposites of her parents, at once negligent and over-attentive, and to disguise her parents' realities from hers. And once she's become so downtrodden that she will turn anywhere for some respite from this fucking monotony, something happens to show her the truth. In some of my stories, her father beats her mother, 
and her mother tells her that it's just his way of expressing himself. In some of my stories, a schoolmate of hers is upset by the layer of depression that settles in over the normal family. In some of my stories, there's a toxin released into the water that causes her parents to be honest about their own insecurities and inadequacies. In some of my stories, her mother finally breaks down and admits that she doesn't care, that her daughter was a mistake, that her only solace is at the bottom of a bottle. The parents' failings are many. Sloth, avarice, gluttony, etc., etc. I admit those are sins, a bit more severe than mere inadequacies. And I admit my own guilt of all of those sins, and all the rest, I'm sure. But I admit it. That's the difference between me and them. Between me and everyone else. I bear my shame to the world. <clears throat> everyone sees everything wrong with me right when they walk in. Just the other day, Gary came in, and he couldn't even look at me. He sneered. I saw. There's no hiding my flaws. That's what sets me apart. I thank my parents for that as well. My mother taught me well that no one is above God, and God is everywhere. In my stories, the hero realizes they can only rid themselves of the horror of lesser beings and the anxiety produced in dealing with them by committing themselves to service of a greater truth. In my stories, she finds someone who can help her transcend this reality. She learns that she is a greater being and that she can shed the toxic mists of illusion that cause fear and pain. She learns that she can fly beyond this loathsome plane as long as she listens to her instructor. She knows that when she sees someone running from sin, she sees someone running from the truth, and that only through the truth will she ever be free. She knows because in my stories, the instructor shows her that through the experience of sin, we can experience truth, that we can understand the worthlessness of flesh. And in my stories, she returns with her instructor to relieve her parents of this worthless flesh. I wrote my stories for Allison. I printed them on newsprint, and I drew the pictures, and I bound them myself. Gary didn't even notice when I handed her the first one. <clears throat> A month or so later, I gave her another one, and Gary asked, What's that? And I told him, It's the second in the series, and I'm done with it now. Maybe the kid will like it. She liked the first one, didn't she? And he looked at her, and she nodded. 
She fucking nodded. Gary is pathetic. So are you. You bought the next one. I put it on the shelf, and Allison picked it up by herself. That was a long, long time ago. The fifth... The fifth story she picked up had something special in it. It was a picture of Allison, and it had a tiny little sticky strip of translucent paper on it. On the back of the picture it said, Put the paper in your mouth. They've all had those little strips since then. Sometimes there's morphine on the strips when my cousin Mickey can get it from the clinic. Sometimes there's ecstasy. Sometimes there's meth. Sometimes it's just acid. Whatever I can afford, I give to her. <clears throat> she loves me. She loves coming to the shithole, and she loves the stories. They're for her. It's magic. She understands that I'm the instructor. In my stories, the instructor looks like me. There's no virtue in beauty, and Allison wants to be free. How could feeling like this be bad? Right, baby? <laughs> this is what it feels like to get closer to freedom. She got a little older, just a little, and you let her walk to her friend Caroline's house. You met Caroline. You met her mother. I know who comes and goes. But Allison doesn't go to Caroline's house. <clears throat> she just crosses the street to Mrs. Trellis's basement. You'd know that if you cared about her. She loves me. I teach her. She only had to cross the street to Mrs. Trellis's basement to get the hammer earlier today. That's what the instructions in the last story told her to do. Of course, you don't know that part. Gary is gone. He's free now. Allison belongs to me. Isn't that right, baby? <laughs> Your daughter's doing you a favor, you know. She loves you, and she only wants you to be free. But it's too late for you. We need to rid you of this body. That's why Allison is holding the hammer. And that's why there's blood on it. And that's also why it's okay. Allison belongs to me now. She needs to hit you with this hammer in order to be free. In order to fly. Look into her eyes. She sees you for what you are. 
Just know that we're doing you a favor. It's okay to cry. Mrs. Trellis is quite deaf. Allison by Steve Moore Narrated by Will Oaken Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood, repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly, your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but 
with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never never more but the raven still beguiling my sad fancy into smiling straight i wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press. Ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, 
desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted. Tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. The Raven, written by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrated by Ren Martinez. That'll do it for episode two of Late Last Night. Tune in next Thursday for episode three. See ya.